0: all right if you have your Bible uh, open and find Revelation chapter 15 Revelation 15 still making our way through this amazing revelation which the Apostle John received from the Lord just remember while he was under arrest basically uh, and and exiled on the island of patmos when he was an old man he was late in years when he received this revelation in fact um, john was an older man when he wrote all the writings that he that we have in the new testament his gospel first second and third john as well as the revelation last week we were in chapter 14 which brought us to the completion of the fourth of the seven sections in revelation that that section section four ran from chapter 12 to chapter 14 that section was very clearly marked. It was maybe one of the clearest sections to see and identify because there is a clear reference to the first coming of Jesus at the beginning of it in chapter 12. There's a very clear, obviously, chapter 14 is the final judgment. It's, it's the, 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 the reaping of the earth, the, the gathering of the believers, the judgment of, of unbelievers. And, um, and that happens at his second coming, which means because that section was so clear that when we come to chapter 15, we're beginning the fifth section of, of Revelation. It's the shortest of seven sec- of the seven sections. Uh, it's just two chapters, this one and the next, um, chapters 15 and 16. But I want to say at the outset, just because I, I don't just want to exhort you by the message of Revelation. I want to try to teach you how to study it yourself and, and, and equip you in that way. I think when we compare this section that we begin today with the last section we just finished last week um, and compare that to, to this section and every other remaining section in the book, we're going to see what I've told you several times uh, as we move later into the book. What do I mean by that? I've told you a million times um, that, by and large, the, the different sections in Revelation... They're, 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 they parallel each other. They are, they are cyclical, seven of them. And by and large, they cover the entire period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. That would mean that's the period of time in which the Apostle John himself was writing this, the period of time in which the first readers of this revelation were living. It's the period of time in which we live right now. Um, and most every section in the book of Revelation fits that description to a T. They describe events, principles uh, that will be at work in the world during the entire church age, Pentecost to now and and until Jesus comes again. Uh, We've seen that in practically every section that we've studied up to this point. But one thing that I mentioned at the outset, and I've tried to repeat a few times since, is that as we get nearer to the end of the book, the book does... um, gain intensity, right? It gets more intense as you get nearer to the end of the book. And what that means is, you say, what does that even mean that it gets more intense? It means that the deeper you get into the book, it's going to give greater and greater attention to the end of all things. It's just going to move right ahead to the final judgment and not necessarily be describing things that are true during this whole period of time. In fact, some of these sections at the end, there may not be any kind of reference to the first coming of Jesus, uh, but instead an exclusive focus on the final judgment and the end of all things. And I say that to say this, well, that's essentially what we're going to see in this section and all the rest of them. It might raise the question, though, interpretively, I, I just want to try to equip you with this, if, if, if all of them from here on out are almost exclusively focused on the final judgment how can you even tell the remaining sections apart, right? Um, it's, good, it's a good question. I, I will say that though, though the section may not have any kind of reference to the first coming of Jesus, it will, each section you'll be able to tell because you can tell when something is, 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 is describing the end and there's the stopping point. So when you come to a next section, it's going to back up just a bit. Not much. It's going to back up just before the return of Christ, and that's how you, that's how you can tell one section from another in these later sections. Anyway, we have an example of that here in chapter, beginning in chapter 15. If you'll, if you'll think back to an earlier part in our study through Revelation, we came across a section that presented to us seven trumpets. You remember the seven trumpets? Hope so. Um, If you remember what I said about those seven trumpets, I said that the trumpets represented uh, and symbolized preliminary judgments. Preliminary judgments. Events that God providentially uh, sprinkles into the history of the world that are intended by Him to warn us of the awful consequences of sin uh, and to move us to repent. The very imagery of a trumpet suggest that. Trumpets blow. They warn. They are warning signals. I mentioned when we studied those seven trumpets that later in the book we would also come across seven bowls. Seven bowls. They would also represent and symbolize God's judgment on the world, but unlike the trumpets, which are preliminary and initial bits uh, events, judgmental events on the world, meant to warn. Instead, the bowls are final judgments. They are are final with no more opportunity for repentance. We see that indicated by that very imagery of a bowl. Trumpets um, uh, are interpreted as warnings because that's what they do. You blow the trumpet and people are warned. But bowls, by the very imagery of the symbol, will indicate final judgment being poured out on the world uh trumpets blow bowls are poured out right so we're coming to the to those bowls and uh, final judgment in this section that begins in chapter 15 we won't see the explicit uh description of the bowls until the next chapter um what we'll find here in chapter 15 is is this this idea of the final judgment being introduced and it's not a very long chapter chapter 15 it's just 8 verses but it's important for us to see what it has to teach us. So let's read the chapter together Follow along as I read Revelation 15, just verses 1 through 8. And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. I mean, that's how you can tell that It's gaining in intensity. We're moving right ahead to the last things. When this happens, it's finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with 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 harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, Saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke. From the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray, Lord. This is a, a it's a heavy chapter. It's a sobering chapter. It's a it's a it's it's so interesting. It's it's exactly as you intended. It's there's 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 heaviness. There's Wrath being poured out until it is finished and yet there is joyful song being sung in the middle of the chapter. We know and we confess based on what we read of your word itself. It, your word is, is inspired and it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative, it's clear, it's sufficient, it's necessary. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth that you have in these these brief verses and give us minds to understand what you say here and hearts to embrace what you say. Help us to embrace the things, even the hard things, and uh, trust you in them. Give us wills to obey whatever it is you lead us and call us and exhort us to do. In this chapter, I ask that you'd give me help that I need to teach and give us all ears to hear, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're taking notes, here's what I'd like us to see in this short chapter. Uh, first of all, I want us to consider uh, the holiness of God. That is the first thing we encounter in, of God in this chapter. We'll see it clearly in the, in early in verse 2, but it's a clear theme throughout the chapter. It is the underpinning to everything else we see that we're going to see in this chapter, the holiness of God. Secondarily, as we move a little further into the passage, I want us to think about the joyful victory of his saints. The joyful victory of his saints. That's, that's the clear message in verses 2 to 4 in this, these songs that are sung, the joyful victory of his saints. And then thirdly and finally, the righteousness of his judgments. The righteousness of His judgments. I actually think that this third point is the main point of the chapter, the righteousness of His judgments. Um, because I think that's the main point because it is preparation, this whole chapter is preparation for the outpouring of the bowls uh, in the next chapter. So it is making clear at the outset that God is just and He is right in what He is about to do, okay? So that's where we're going, so let's take a closer look at it now and think first quickly about the holiness of God and, and how we see that here. You see it in the very first words of the chapter that, that this is a scene in heaven again. Uh, it's situating you in heaven, and I saw, verse 1, another sign in heaven. And, and, and so it, you're, it's about to present you a vision of God in, in heaven on his throne and the emphasis on his holiness it's, it's very clearly presented to us in the, in, to the reader in the first part of what he says in verse 2. When John says in verse 2 at the first part, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. That isn't the first time that we have seen this kind of imagery associated with the throne of God. Um, hold your place here and flip back to chapter 4. And we saw that uh, we, so we saw it the first time in chapter 4, which, which in the book of Revelation, this is sort of the first image you get of of heaven and the throne of God. Um, and, and, and we see it. So in chapter 4, you see in verse 1 that John is looking at heaven itself. In verse 2, he sees the throne of God. And then following that, there's all kinds of symbolic descriptions that, that flow. I mean, there's There's, uh, I mean, around the throne was a rainbow, and the 24 elders, and and flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder, and um, on and on and on and on. And then verse 6, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And in fact, that same language describing this scene at the throne of God is... Is, that's not even the first time we see it. You don't have to flip there, but that has Old Testament precedence behind it, because in the in the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter one verse twenty-two, Ezekiel has this vision of the of, of heaven and the throne of God, and in Ezekiel one twenty-two describes it as quote an expanse, an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal, right? So it's, it's not surprising, you go back to, to chapter 15, it's not surprising then that we find this language again uh, of, of the throne of God. But based on those two other examples that I just gave you, Ezekiel 122, it was an expanse of awe-inspiring crystal, or, or, or uh, Revelation 4.6, around it was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal based on those two examples that i just gave you and what you see here in the first part of chapter 15 verse 2 there's an there's a very obvious difference can you can you spot what it is yeah it says in verse 2 that there was a there was a sea of glass mingled with fire mingled with fire is not a, a a a description we've seen in any other places what, what, is, what, is that, what is the significance, not only of the sea of glass, but now the additional description of this sea of glass, this sea of crystal, that it's mingled with fire. Tom Schreiner, who was uh, one of my seminary professors and a former pastor of mine, said that that imagery of this expanse, this sea of glass, especially as it's mingled with fire, probably represents the, the gulf between the presence of a holy God and sinful people. It's this gulf between holy God and sinners. Um, and, and in fact, that's, that's what the sea in association with the throne of God always represents. It's Because it's not... If you'll think carefully about the descriptions we see of the sea, especially in Revelation, you're going to find before we get to the end of Revelation, that sea is no longer there. Right? So this... This, this sea of crystal, this sea of glass is not some kind of permanent fixture. It's, it's, a symb- it's symbolic of something that's not always going to be the case. Um, because, because in Revelation 21.1, when it describes the new heavens and the new earth, and the end of all things, it says the sea was no more. The sea was no more. We've already pointed out, I think I pointed out last week or the week before, that in ancient Hebrew thought, the sea represented... Chaos, destruction, um, sometimes even e- evil—not well wickedness—and not not associated with God. Was it evil and wicked? But it was just ominous, and 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 chaotic, and, and destruction. And you you get that idea as early as the first two verses of the Bible. Uh, not necessarily evil, because sin did not enter the world, but chaos and, and ominousness when, when God creates the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep before he brought order to the creation, right? Um, and, and, and so I, I agree with Dr. Schreiner that this, this sea is associ- that is associated with God's throne is a reference to the gulf separating sinners from the presence of his holy throne, and that, th- that it is a sea that is mingled with fire um, only adds intensity to that imagery. It's, it's, it's telling that when you get to the end of the book, the sea's no more. Why? Because when you get to that point, there are no more unredeemed sinners in his presence from, from whom he needs to be separated, right? But at this point, I mean, there are, there are those who are consigned to hell for eternity, but in his presence, all the sinners there are redeemed by his blood. At this point in chapter 15, though, prior to the full and final outpouring of his judgments there is this vivid reminder of the holiness of God and the impassable gulf that rightly separates sinners from him and this emphasis on his holiness continues throughout the passage in verse 4 when the redeemed are singing around his throne and we'll say more about this in a minute this song they sing in verse 4 for you alone are holy and in verses 5 and 6 and 8 the place of God's presence is called the sanctuary. I mean, the very root of that word, sanctuary, is the Latin word "sanctus," which means holy. It's holy. Uh, and uh, if, if you look at the in, in in verses five, six, and eight, if you look, um, don't just build your your thought on on our English word. If you Look at the Greek word that's translated here, sanctuary. The Greek word there is the Greek word naus, which is their word for temple. It's the word for temple. And I'll say more about this phrase in a minute, but notice verse 5. Verse 5 calls it the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. The sanctuary of the tent. That word tent is their word for it's Skenos, it's the word for tabernacle so it's literally saying it is it is the when it says the sanctuary of the tent of witness it is literally it is the temple of the tabernacle it's the temple of the tabernacle the both both tabernacle and temple are places of god's presence but to word it like this the temple uh it's the temple or sanctuary of the tabernacle it is placing you within the center of the Tabernacle; it is the holy of holies. It's the holy of holies, and in verse eight, we're told that this sanctuary, this holy of holies of God's presence, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. That that imagery it it it, it is reminiscent of the the Exodus of or the old, the Old Testament, like in in Exodus forty, after they. After they finished the the tabernacle, it says God's holy glory descended on that tabernacle like a cloud. That's Exodus forty, verses thirty four and thirty-five. Descended on it like a cloud, and Moses and the other priests could not even enter the cloud. And the same thing happened in 1 Kings chapter 8. Priests could not even enter when the cloud of God's holy glory descended upon it. Happened again in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And isn't it interesting here in verse 8, when this happens, smoke filled. And it says in verse 8, no one can enter the sanctuary. Right? It's, it's reminiscent of those tabernacle and temple cloud, cloud descending on it. It's not just that, though. It's, it's also reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah has this vision of the Lord high and lifted up and smoke A cloud of smoke surrounded his throne. And what are the seraphim crying out day and night? Holy, holy, holy. So the utter holiness of God is is an unmistakable emphasis in this chapter. What is the holiness of God? If if you should say God is holy and somebody should say, what does that mean? How would you describe what the holiness of God is? Well, in the Bible, it, it has two shades of meaning. One is, he is completely other than us. He is completely separate from us. We are made in his image. He is not made in ours. He is God and we are not. He's holy. He's set apart. That's one meaning. The second meaning of holy is, he is pure. He is pure, brightness. He dwells in unapproachable light. In him is no darkness at all. Sinless. Right? That is what is emphasized in this chapter. And I I think this is going to form the basis for what I think is the overall message of this chapter, which I'll point out in the the final point here. Um, But before we get to that, I want to see here in the text a second emphasis. Seeing now the holiness of God that rightly separates sinners from his holy presence we need to see the emphasis given also to the joyful victory of his saints the joyful victory of His saints we begin to see this also all the way back in verse 2 so go back to verse 2 and you see the sink, the, the, the the sea of glass mingled with fire and keeping in mind that that the symbolic purpose of that image is the separation between god and sinners the very next phrase after it talks about the sea of glass mingled with fire the very next phrase is, is, is intended to be both surprising and deeply encouraging. It talks about the sea of glass mingled with fire and immediately follows that with this. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. There are a couple of things I want to note about that, that right there. Um, first is, who are... Who is being referred to when it says those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name? Who is that? Um, if your if your first inclination uh, Sunday school answer is not Jesus, but all believers, you'd be right, um, because first of all, this clearly it's t- when it says. Um, they've conquered the beast. We've already seen the two beasts in in chapter 13. beast arising out of the sea, beast arising out of the earth. Both are presented as a tool of Satan um, to, to, to persecute the church. Satan is the one standing behind these beasts, giving power to these beasts. So when it says, it's talking about those who had conquered the beast, that's the same thing as saying those who had conquered Satan. So we ask a question again, who are they? And if you've been a careful reader of Revelation so far, you will know that they are everyone in Christ by faith. Everyone in Christ by faith. You already saw in chapter 12, for example. You you could maybe just flip back one page maybe in your Bible to chapter 12. Chapter 12 describes how Christ won the victory over Satan and threw threw him down the one who, Satan who accused believers day and night, he threw him down in verse 9. And in verse 11 in chapter 12, it says of believers towards Satan, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have not loved their lives even unto death. And so going back to chapter 15 in verse 2. When it says, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. That is, believers in Christ. So you've got the sea of glass mingled with fire. And also, believers in Christ. And what are they doing in verse 2? Standing beside the sea of glass. I've already, I don't want to be so pedantic that I'm talking about the Greek language the whole time. But if you'll just go one more time. Uh, when it, when it said that, when that preposition there, when it says standing besi- beside the sea, um, the 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 Greek preposition there is epi, 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 um, which that that almost always means on, on top of, over, above, um, something written on something, an epitaph. You know, we 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 brought that over to our own language. And so it is probably better translated here. These believers are standing on the sea of glass. Not beside it. On it. On top of it. Um, They are standing on the place where the holiness of God should consume sinful people. Believers can stand there and not be consumed. How How are they... not separated and consumed where, where sinners are separated and consumed by the judgment of a holy God. Not because they're not sinners. But because by repentance and faith they are covered by the blood of the Lamb who suffered in their place. Hence, 12-11, they, they, they conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb. And in fact, they aren't just standing there here, are they? What are they doing? Singing. Joyful singing, harps of God in their hands. Harps indicative of joy. I said that last week. That's why we have so much singing. That's why in the Christian Christian faith there's just so much singing. Just so much song. When there are there are other religions in the world that just don't have the singing we have. They're not marked by their singing. Maybe chanting, but singing. That's that's those in Christ. And what are they singing about? They're singing about the the victory of God in Christ over all His enemies. It says in verse 3 that they sing two songs. One is the song of Moses, and the second one is the song of the Lamb. What is the song of Moses? It's the song that Moses and and the people of Israel Saying in Exodus chapter 15, after the Lord had delivered them with a, by a mighty hand out of slavery in Egypt, and had miraculously he had miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea for them to cross into deliverance, and as Pharaoh's army pursued after them, he miraculously caused the Red Sea to come crashing down on them and drown them in his judgment. And isn't it interesting in 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 light of what they? They sing that song. That, that event was a, was a type and a shadow of this greater salvation coming in Jesus. And isn't it interesting in light of what we've seen here, that in the song they sing, in, 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 in the song of Moses they sing, Who is like you, majestic in holiness? In the song of Moses, they're, 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 they're praising God, not only for His salvation of them from their slavery, but they're also, if you read that song in Exodus 15... The constant beat of the drum in that song is praising him for his judgment over his enemies. And by the way, you may have already noticed here how heavily this chapter draws on the book of Exodus. It just does. Um, it, It opens with this reference to plagues, seven angels with seven plagues. It references the song of Moses here. We've already talked about the sanctuary of the tent the temple of the tabernacle. We've talked about the filling with smoke and nobody could enter. It's like like the the Holy Spirit through John in using this language is is telling you, hey, when that actually happened in history with Pharaoh and Israel and Egypt, when when God caused that actually to happen, he had a dual purpose in it. He didn't just mean to deliver Israel. He meant it to be an actual type and an actual shadow of an even greater thing coming. And it's this. And when you look at the song of the Lamb, the focus is the same. At the end of verse 4, they sing, Your righteous acts have been revealed. And I, I believe that that is speaking both of their salvation in Christ, by virtue of which they are standing where sinners would normally be slain, But they're also looking forward to the bowls that are about to be poured out. The judgment that's about to be executed on His enemies. Enemies who have continued unrepentant in rebellion against Him. Righteous. And on that note, we we need to move to the final thing we see in this passage. Which flows out of the two things we've just seen. Because of the holiness of God, the joyful saints in Christ can sing about Thirdly and finally, the righteousness of his judgments. The righteousness of his judgments. Look again at the song that they sing. In that song, they emphasize the rightful authority of God. He's referred to as O, o Lord God the Almighty, O King of the nations. His infinite power is emphasized when they say, Great, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, who will not fear? We've already seen how it it emphasizes His holiness and His worthy. But standing in the middle of all of these things is perhaps the most noteworthy emphasis of the chapter, especially in view of what's about to happen, and that is what God is about to do is just and right. What God is about to do is just and right. It's It's why twice in this song, not in exactly the same way, but talking about the same thing, two times in this short song, they sing, just and true are your ways. And as we saw in the last phrase, your righteous acts have been revealed. Not just your acts, your righteous acts. And I hinted at earlier, this chapter is mainly preparatory for the next one. And the pouring out of the seven bowls of God's wrath. That's just, this is just setting the stage for the pouring out of His wrath in final judgment we're going to see actually in the next chapter that after all the judgments are poured out that unbelievers will still be unrepentant and they'll still believe that the judgments were unfair and wrong flip over to chapter 16 just real quick just a preview of things to come and the very last verse of chapter 16 after all the bowls were poured out what does it say of the unbelievers and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. They never agree with the rightness of God's punishments. And, and frankly, lest we be uh, right in our own eyes, without the saving and merciful restraining grace of God against our own sin, we would never think we were wrong. We would never repent. We would do what was right in our own eyes. Psalm 36 talks about the mindset of the wicked. And in Psalm 36, David says, There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. They've justified every action in their own eyes. They don't think they're wrong. We too often do that too. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. And, and the word of God constantly in our minds to resist that tendency in our own hearts. But back to the main emphasis in chapter 15. Again, the song here is setting the stage for um, the stubborn unrepentance. It's not just, this, this, this passage is not just preparing you for the judgments, it's also preparing you for the stubborn response of the sinners under those judgments, because despite their curses, despite their protest, the affirmation here in the song is, just and true are your ways. Your righteous acts have been revealed. And that's a, that's a great lesson for all of us. Most all of us, if we are not just blithely going through our lives and unthinkingly, uncritically, if we, if, most of us, at one time or another... Um, question the ways of God in the present. You know, maybe not in an accusatory way, but at least in a confused way. But the constant reminder of Scripture is on the day that Jesus comes and all is revealed, no one will be able to question the righteousness or the justice of God in all His ways. If you look at Chapter 16, they, uh, one more time. I better not say too much. I won't have anything to say next week. Um, but if you look in chapter 16, they sing a song there too. Just look at verse 5. What do they emphasize in their song in chapter 16? Just are you, O Holy One. And I love that. <laughs> Again, who is and who was. There is no more is to come. This is the end of all things. In verse six, it is what they deserve. In verse seven, true and just are your judgments. You see, you see this all throughout the Bible. So that when we are tempted to wonder or to question why, why has God allowed certain things to happen or why is he allowed certain things to come into your life you can perhaps by the help of the Holy Spirit recall the song that these in the presence of God are singing it could remind you that you only feel this way and I only feel this way because I don't know everything I don't know everything I don't know everything that there is to know about what I have just experienced and if I knew all that there was to know I wouldn't feel the way I feel The overwhelming testimony of God's word to us is this. When all facts are known, God will be shown to be right and it will be good. By God's grace, we will be among the redeemed, praising Him for His mercy, declaring just and true are Your ways. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your precious word to us. Thank You for that even in just eight short verses, a a very brief chapter, there is much for us to see and learn of you, of ourselves, of what implicitly what you exhort us to do in this passage. So I pray that as we have a, a, a few short minutes around our tables actually this morning, you would help us to think about those things. Think critically about your word, in Jesus' name, amen.